everyone. My name is Sean Falconer, and I am head of marketing and developer relations at Skyflow. And you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. Fantastic. I always love professional podcasters because getting on mic is never a challenge. And also, Sean, this is actually pretty cool because we've kind of accidentally been adjacent to each other for quite a while in the industry. And it was funny when I had your name pop up as a potential guest, I was like, I feel like I literally know you because I've seen content from your podcast. And then I realized going back, I'm like, I've seen some of your written work, mm -hmm. some of the stuff you've done with, with your previous, you know, company. So this feels like I I'm walking into familiar conversation. Uh, and so I've got the easy part. Uh, but for folks that are brand new to you, if you don't mind doing a quick bio intro, and then we're, we're going to talk about, Skyflow, uh, LLM goodness, and, you know, but not in the usual way. This is not going to be the AI washing podcast where we say LLMs are great and it's the future. Like, no, we're going to talk about prescriptive, <laughs> gnarly things that we got to get done. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to hear that you've you've seen some of the stuff. I actually hear that quite a bit since I'm sort of so out on the internet at this point of creating content and so forth. Whenever I interview people, they'll be like, oh, I like, you know, watch this video of you or something like that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm glad that you hopefully got some value out of that. So that's fantastic. Um, but uh, I, so my background is computer science. I studied uh, computer science over three degrees for a decade. I'm Canadian as, as I know you are as well. So we have that connection as well, even in, it's a deeper bond even than, uh, you know, ner nerding out on things together uh, as, <laughs> as fellow Canadians. But so I'm kind of an untraditional marketer in some sense where I, you know, studied computer science. I was, you know, a big part of my start of my career was in engineering. But I ended up founding a company and I was actually the CTO and co-founder of that company. But as part of that process of founding a company, you're just forced to kind of learn different things that are outside of maybe the skill set that you learned in school or what you've had as a prior experience, because there's simply no one else to do those things. It's like a forcing function, because if you don't do it, it just does not get done in the early days. So besides writing essentially a lot of the original code base for our product, I also built the marketing function and I built like the SDR team and I had to kind of figure out the business side of the business. And I learned a lot about those types of things. And I also learned that I enjoyed some of the problems that existed there and felt like I had something unique or interesting to kind of bring to that. And then from there, I joined Google after I ran that company for seven years. Uh, we sold it and then I joined Google in developer relations engineering, which is kind of a combination of engineering, but also product and marketing. So again, it was more cross-functional, which was the experience that I had both in academics as well as, you know, as a founder. And that was really attractive to me of being able to do kind of a mixture of different things and kind of, uh, you know, stretch across different boundaries. And then from there, uh, I spent four years at Google. When I left, I was running developer ex uh, experience engineering teams for four different products there. And I joined Skyflow about two and a half years ago, originally as their head of developer relations. And then over the first year, I ended up moving into leading all of marketing uh, for Skyflow. So that's where I am today. I'm curious with 
Google in I've spoken with different folks that have gone through the developer relations, you know, part of the I'll say part of the org, but that's that's usually how it is in many other companies, but no one knows where to put developer relations. And it was interesting that you talk about the the good cross-functional mix that was there because of your background in academics. And this is what I find is the difference is that like Google obviously has a bit of a an academic lean in how they approach a lot of the problems and the solutions you're building mm -hmm. versus like developer relations in a lot of traditional, you know, early stage startups or even, you know, enterprise or tech orgs, no one knows what to do with it. And they have trouble justifying it because there's not easy KPIs. It's mm -hmm. a very, but it's a very human, it's a UX for developers in my view, right? Mm -hmm. That this is the UX to my company that, you know, I just happen to be the voice or the written word on it. So curious how you found developer relations as you entered Skyflow versus the approach that was something you came from in, in Google. Yeah, I think one of the reasons developer relations gets sort of can be hard to define or hard to sort of bucket under a specific uh, like functional area of the company is because what a company wants out of developer relations can depend on essentially the founders of the leading team. Like at Google, it's a very engineering focused organization. It's within the engineering ladder. And I would say that the certainly the majority of people who are at least working in like a what we would be called uh traditionally like a developer advocacy role at Google's the developer relations engineer, they self-identify as software engineers, not necessarily as, you know, a product person or marketing person or something like that. And I think they're kind of protective over that. Um so because it's very engineering focused, I think the way they also measure impact in the value that you have to the organization is going to be different than maybe an organization where we want somebody that's doing a little bit more of the developer marketing, pure developer marketing part of developer relations. And there, the KPIs might be different in the way you evaluate that person. So at Google, my team owned essentially all external facing developer tooling and documentation. So I had technical writers, I had engineers reporting to me. When orgs get bigger, you have you know natural other things like program managers or product managers even within that. And you're running it a lot like an engineering team to some degree. So um, we owned all the external SDKs. Uh, I designed the APIs. I also designed a lot of our developer tooling consoles and so forth. So that's a lot different than I think other necessarily other places. But for me, it's all about like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And how do I sort of marry that to where I can add value? And I think one of the missteps sometimes that happens with developer relations practitioners is they aren't necessarily looking at what is the business objective and then how do I contribute to moving the business objectives in a way that has impact. It's more like I have this per point of view of what developer relations should be. I'm not going to do that regardless of what the, um, the business right. impact is, right? And I think that's a, if you have that misalignment, then you're always going to be struggling to essentially prove why you exist. And that's a bad place to be regardless of you know, what your role is within the company. So I think it's very important to be upfront when you're joining a company and be like, you know, why does this thing exist? What are you hoping this to be? And then if that doesn't align with what you want to do or you, how you think you can bring value, you probably want to go somewhere else. Um, but for Skyflow, like we were kind of, you know, we're a very um, engineering focused company. We have a, a product that we sell essentially into CTOs, but it's also different, I would say, uh, sort of go to market than 
a lot of times you see developer relations teams working in uh, where it might be like based on an open source project. It might be product-like growth where you're trying to like increase, you know, uh, push people into like a freemium model to try it. You know, we're a sales-led organization, bigger contracts. It's it's more like you're buying essentially like a, a factory to integrate into your platform. That's different than essentially someone who's going and trying to get like a new apartment. That means the buyer's different and the decision-making process is different. And it takes sort of a deeper level of engagement and stuff. So that changes, I think, how something like developer relations is going to work within an organization like that. You have to be thinking about like selling or essentially the buyer or, or creating content that engages like a CTO is different than creating content that's going to engage essentially like an application engineer. So you need to kind of know where the that stack is um, and then kind of map that to what you can bring. bring. The other challenge, I think uh, I've been talking for a while, so I'll just leave it. At, at it's all good. This, it's all good. Don't for, worry. <laughs> yeah, the other challenge I think with developer relations is that it's essentially an umbrella. It's like social science. So that makes it hard to define in a lot of ways because really, at least from my perspective, like developer relations is um, developer marketing is like one of those basically functions that could fall within the developer relations. There's developer experience. We could be more focused on like the tooling, the first time experience and so forth. And that's kind of leans a little bit more on the, on the product side of being a developer relations practitioner. There's developer education. And then it's like, how do I make people successful? How do I teach them about the thing that I you know, care about or my company cares about? And then there's also developer success. And it's like, okay, well, we have these customers that are using it. We have developers using it. How can I make them successful? And maybe that's documentation or things that are a little bit more in the weeds of like how I do this thing with this product. And depending on the company, you can have sort of different mixes and also different focus areas. And for us at Skyflow, originally, I would say we I heavily leaned into sort of the developer marketing side because our biggest problem is that we're a new category of product and you need to essentially educate the market about this idea of what we call a data privacy vault. Like why do, should they care about that? So you really need to climb to the tallest mountain consistently and shout from that mm -hmm. and say like, hey, like you should be caring about privacy, security, and the way that we have historically handled this kind of data of customer PII is you know, fundamentally wrong. Here's a new approach. And look, if you understand what I'm saying, Skyflow is a great offering for that. But even if you don't, you should know what this thing is so that you know right. how to build things correctly. Yeah, well, and this is the, the dichotomy of being in technical marketing in the, pure, in the purest form that I view it in, that we should be writing about the problem to a depth that I, I call it, you you want nod reading, where someone's reading the blog going, yeah, yeah, this person gets me. And you want to basically set up the challenge, make them understand that this is a, a difficult thing to deal with. There, here are a couple of ways that you can do it. And ideally, it gets to the point where they go, they agree that they have this problem. They agree that it's a difficult problem. And then in their minds, they're then creating a value for the time they could save by getting rid of this problem. You don't have to then go into Skyflow is the only solution in the marketplace. That can, like, you know, you don't, we, we stop there. We don't need to say that because they will begin to build that in their head of like, hmm, I'm reading this on the Skyflow blog. I'm curious what their stuff does. And then now they're going to look for another article on the blog. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to look at your video resources. And now they're actively engaged in caring about your solution because they know you care about the problem. 
Yeah. And it's super hard to have the discipline to write about the problem, especially when you're market creating, because you have to then sort of go like, eh, the industry is kind of messed up. Like the industry is broken. And it's so, it's just too easy to get stuck at that level where people are like, oh, yeah, I get it. And mm-hmm. you've got the game changing, you know, industry, li- <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever other hyphenated uh, things we want to want to layer on there. But in the end, like you do a fantastic job of like, this is the outcome you want to aim for. And here's sort of the problem that's keeping you from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the things that I've tried to do, especially early on, was take like mine places like stack overflow and see what is it what kind of problems that relate to what we do are people already talking about so you'll find lots of people on stack overflow asking about like hey i you know my company's handling social security numbers like how can i secure a social security number or yeah. you know my company's handling like accident you know putting pii and log files like how can i solve this problem so those become like natural things that you can write about and I, you know, write about those problems. And then I also break down, like, if you're doing this essentially from scratch, like, here's the different approaches that you could take. What are the downsides or limitations of those approaches to make people understand that the actual solutions for a lot of these types of problems are fairly complicated to build. Um, but I'm still giving you the tools if you did really want to go off and try to build something. But at the same time, it's also like, hey, there's also this kind of off the shelf product that can also help you solve this problem. And I don't think it's about, you have to essentially be, it's always about authenticity. And I think where, um, you know, marketing has historically kind of got a bad rap with engineering is that, you know, people will say like, oh, engineers are like allergic to marketing or like, you know, they, they hate marketing. And I don't think that's really true. They are allergic and hate bad marketing and inauthentic messaging, but everybody does. So like, if you actually understand them and I am, you know, I still identify as one, as an engineer. Um, If you actually understand that world, then they're, they like people who, you know, can talk about problems and solutions in an authentic way. And that gives them real value. And I, this is really what's interesting to me is that we are like engineers are seeking the answer. They're literally going to Quora and Stack Overflow seeking the answer. Mm -hmm. And so they like those forums because it feels agnostic. What is wild is how many people, and this is like like startup and marketing and sales fail number one to me, is when people just, first thing they do is reply like, oh, you totally nailed the problem that we solve. I'm like, yeah, gotcha. Like, don't, don't do this. Don't be that person that goes into the forum and answers with a product pitch. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's but, the inauthenticity, right? Like you have yeah. to, you have to give. I think, especially when you're trying to integrate yourself into a community, and a lot of I think where developer relations teams can add real value is like ingratiating themselves in communities where the users of their products are hanging out, or the potential users of their products are hanging out, and you have to give more than you're sort of taking. It's like any relationship that you're building. You know, you, it, it'd be a lot to go out on like a, I don't know, a first date and then ask that person for a loan for a thousand dollars, right? But like, uh, maybe if you've known that person for five years, that's like a, a more reasonable ask. Like you have to essentially give in to the community, give to the, build those relationships, become somewhat of a known entity before you're trying to like take from it essentially. And then also you still need to be very protective because people will like have a, a strong, um, uh, 
I think like knows when it comes to something that feels overly pitchy, overly salesy, overly marketing. Uh, and that's like, I think a big part of my job a lot of times is uh, when, uh, you know, people who are, you know, traditional marketers working within our company is like making sure that we we squash any of that kind of stuff. It's like, no, this doesn't sound, this doesn't ring true. This is not how people talk in the tech industry about this concept. Right. Yeah. I, uh, the, uh, apologies if you use the word shift left anywhere, but this is one that always used to bug me is people would say like shift left. And I'm like, you know, I've never, never spoken to a practitioner who's be like, you know what we should really do? We need to shift left more. Like, no, 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 no. This is like, that's a very Gartner-esque type of thing. And, and we, I mean, we have this in the industry. There are, analysts and we talk about you know paradigms and and the the things do exist but this is not how we should market like this mm -hmm. is not how we should especially describe the the problem like this yeah. use customer language and no customer so I've, I've got this one i keep threatening to to hit publish and i should because eventually someone's going to steal the title I have one called shift left is full of shift and, 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 and but <laughs> with good. the whole idea that that's take the words aside, the reason why we have to talk about this, just like when someone said, why do we have to say DevSecOps? It should be implied in DevOps. And I said, hey, you're right, but it's not like it's, it's, it's actually not implied. That's why we have to be explicit because people forgot the sec part. They just mm -hmm. did the DevOps. Like there was no sec there. So that makes sense as a call out. Yeah. But, you know, it, we suffer as an industry. We always think like, I got this. I don't need more terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think digital transformation is another one that feels very like oh, yeah. someone came up with. Like, I've never, ever heard anybody in an engineering leadership <laughs> that should talk about digital transformation. They have the digital transformation thermometer on the wall behind them. And like, we're at 80% digital transformed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like exactly. oh, no one does this. <laughs> so... One thing that's neat about what we as marketers and developer relations face is the question every day, aren't you just going to get replaced? Couldn't I just go to ChatGPT or, you know, the, you know, Gemini or some other tool and just kind of write the content that you write? Mm -hmm. Now, this is going to get into some LLM stuff and I'm using this as a way in perfect link because you know this. What is it about LLMs today? We'll have to be contextual that this is, you know, February 2024, and a lot could change even this week. But as of now, mm -hmm. why do LLMs lack the ability to just do what you and I do? So I definitely think that if you're not leveraging LLMs and you're a content creator, you're sort of doing yourself a disservice because there is, I think, tremendous value in using those tools, just like tools that came before them, right? Like I, I could technically write my content by writing in a piece of paper, but the, you know, it's much faster for me to write it in a word processor or a CMS and then like publish it. Um, so it's we shouldn't be afraid of the tools. And I think the other thing is the you're sort of also doing yourself a disservice if as a developer relations person, you're essentially oversimplifying your job to someone who just like, like pushes up content. I don't think that's really what it is. Like, you know, you're missing the entire like feedback loop to the product team. Like when you're out talking to, to folks, 
what are they saying about the product or what are they saying about what you're doing? You should have essentially, it needs to be, you know, two ways, essentially externally, you are the, you know, engineering face of the organization. Internally, you're the representation of the community and you need to balance those two things. So it should be that full cycle, full life cycle between uh, the internal and external uh, folks that you're, you're working with. So I don't really think it's purely about like content. Now, in terms of, where limitations exist with LLMs today, you know, I think there's people, of course, trying to do some multimodal stuff around, you know, creating decks or even creating like audio and video. I think there's still a long way to come before you don't need, you know, a person doing a lot of work to actually make that happen. And I also think even when it comes to purely writing something like a blog post, like certainly LLMs can add value to help you get started and solve some of the blank page problem but they're not really going to be able to do something, I think at the level that it needs to be done, that someone who really knows the subject matter is going to be able to create. And a lot of times, like, I think you can, if you do enough prompt prompt engineering context setting, maybe you can get the tone right, but usually that takes some sort of level of massaging. They're generally not great at also gener spitting out long form content. It's one thing to take like, hey, I have these like five points that I wanna make in an introduction, can you come up with like a concise introduction to this blog post and it'll spit right. out a couple of paragraphs and then you can kind of massage it in something. It's a lot different to be like, here's my like draft outline of all the things I want to cover. Uh, write the, you know, 2,500 word blog post with code examples and a link to a GitHub repo and a, and a, and a demo video. Like yeah. that's not going to be very successful right now. You're going to get like mediocre content that probably would be better served by an intern essentially doing that. Yeah, well, one of the things I, I cause I love, of course I'm, I'm literally in the content business uh, and we often get asked like, do we use, you know, GPTs and, and tools as part of the process? We do it more for the research side, but we have human writers. And in fact, we're very strict that we don't allow AI for the, in, the initial writing of the content where it is product and customer content, because what we want to do is, you know, there are ways that we can use those tools to help with abstracts. And we've, we've built proprietary tools in order to do that. And, you know, there was two reasons. One, I needed to make sure that it continued to actually behave like I want it to behave. But in order for it to be meaningful to my purpose, I had to feed a lot of proprietary information and, immediately then I think well, this is why most people don't do it because you can't just fire financial reports and all this stuff in there. And even as good as multimodals are, you're still basically entrusting this data ingest to be processed and learned on by a public model. Mm -hmm. So then this triggered me. So our internal team, you know, we have a developer team that built you know, our own proprietary tools to help with some of the like research gathering and, and aggregation of things. But like you said, there's too much risk in inaccuracy. There's, it doesn't write well. <laughs> and the funny thing is, cause it writes like it learned. There's a lot of bad writing on the internet. I've contributed to a lot of it. I'm fine with that. You know, my writing has evolved a lot over time, but these tools are based on a vast public pool and the public doesn't always write that well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's also where you get 
Um, I think an area where LMs struggle today is like exact answers. Like if you ask for a specific quote or, uh, you know, a certain fact or figure, they aren't necessarily going to create something that's actually true or factual or exactly the quote that you're looking for. Um, right. And it's just the nature of essentially how they're trained and also how they essentially generate content. And to your point about building like an internal tool, we also built our own internal tool because you do, there is a huge challenge right now. And I actually think it's like, probably the most immediate challenge in the world of LLMs in terms of uh, being able to make it so that like companies can move beyond like demos and proof of concept to actually deploying things is that they, we can't really solve or we don't have great solutions beside be, uh, to solve some of the privacy and security challenges around LLMs. Like it's a different paradigm completely from anything that we've really worked with uh, on a regular basis in the past, like it's, it's not, it's not like a database. There's no practical delete button for an LLM, Like you basically have to right. blow away the model and retrain it. And that means that if you leak proprietary information, customer data, employee data into an LLM, it's there forever. You know, like you can't really get that back. And even if you look at open AI, you know, one of the probably most well-resourced companies in the world that has some of the best people in the world on the frontiers of AI working on it, they're still really struggling with this problem. Like uh, a few months yeah. ago, Google researchers were able to prompt hack uh, or prompt inject uh, GPTs to uh, with the poem attack where they basically had the GPT repeat the word poem. And then it started actually spitting out with training data that contained PII. And it's like, if they can't get a handle on this problem, do you really think you're you without expertise or the number of resources that you need are going to be actually able to solve this problem? And this is where, um, you know, at Skyflow, we've been able to sort of carve our niche within the LLM market is really around helping companies solve some of these fundamental privacy and security challenges. And we've, you know, launched a product maybe five or six months ago that now is seeing like tremendous amount of engagement because it does allow people to like, do things that would be very difficult to do in a privacy and secure compliant way, like training LLM on like uh, on um, hospital data, which we have essentially a customer doing today. It's like, how do you take doctor's notes and create an LLM based on that training set without yeah. accidentally leaking something that you really don't want to leak and is under HIPAA compliance? Yeah, this is what, and it's funny as a Canadian, uh, I used to, I worked in financial services for a long time and we always had very specific regulatory boundaries there even, and in healthcare, I worked in insurance companies too. So it was not only like federal, but there's provincial differences. Right. Like you could, if you had an Alberta policy, the data from that policy could only reside in Alberta. And it's like, so you have to design your servers, you know, and that was, pre, you know, pre-cloud, you know, even distributed server environments, you had to think about data locality. And then on top of that, then you'd say, what about disaster recovery? Well, I need to have disaster recovery. And that means I need to have that data available instantaneously somewhere else. That's far enough away for geographic protection, but still meets the regulatory, like, and it's very easy to just in one, like accident, like, no problem. Let's just copy this database over to this server. And next thing you know, it's in a different province that it should be or a different yeah. country. And there's and a lot of databases that are multi-regional too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then 
So that that same problem, we think like, ah, oh, okay, cool. Well, now we get into LLMs and people forget, oh, we're effectively going to replay that same problem set, except yeah. it's way more opaque mm -hmm. and way more difficult to reverse. As you said, like going back and basically retraining, wiping it and retraining a model is horrifically expensive and complex. Yeah. It you know, you, and you touched on this idea of data locality, data residency, data sovereignty. There's sort of these different flavors of of things uh, of uh, these regulations that mean uh, that kind of are all related but have slightly different meaning. But that is a huge challenge for people just using traditional data systems. But now, when you apply it to the world of LM, like, do you if you have a global customer base or even customers in multiple places like Europe and in, in, in the United States and Canada, are you going to create a separate LLM that runs within each of those regions so they can keep the, the training data essentially regionalized. Like ideally you run essentially one global LLM, just like you want to run one global analytics platform, but then you can keep the regulated data within the region that it needs to live. And the key there is essentially figuring out how can we train the LLM against this customer data, but not actually leak any of the PII into it. So the LLM isn't the source yeah. of truth of that information. It sounds so easy. No, just kidding. It doesn't sound easy at all. It's terrifying. This is like, there's a lot. And the problem we often have is developers don't necessarily have the, the amount of understanding of the data on which they develop because it's really hard. Like most, like, a, you know, a business, you know, experienced developer, you, you develop an understanding of the business over time. And you learn about, especially when you're in like insurance and medical, like you generally have an understanding, but you're a developer. I hired you because you're an amazing developer. I don't care that you worked at Google or whether you worked at Manulife. You're a great developer. So I'm going to put you in a bank. So I can't possibly expect you to understand regulations around banking. You'll learn them over time. So it's, it's a heavy responsibility to dump on our technologists to protect data. How do you... How do you find your, who's the person you talk to about Skyflow? Because it's both a technical challenge and a business challenge. And in fact, not just both, but the third is it's a legal, you know, and compliance, you know, mm -hmm. and governance problem as well. It's really, I would say nearly 100% of the time, the CTO of the company, because you basically need somebody who has um, technical depth and technical understanding, but they're also understand the business challenges just like you touched on and they also have authority for change so it's really like the that sort of intersection in that venn diagram between those three things and that generally is going to be the cto of a company maybe it's the ceo depending on you know the size of an organization or something like that but it because it's not just about how you implement it you need to have a good understanding of uh why not doing something is potentially like a risky thing for the business and also have some understanding of maybe their regulatory landscape and the challenges you might be facing there. And then of course, authority for change is important because this is gonna be something that potentially touches all parts of the organization or large parts of the organization that you need to make a change in terms of how you handle handle that data or how you deploy or something like that. Now, when it comes to the, like the responsibility that you've seen change in your time in the industry, Sean, do you see the today CTO versus like 10 years ago, 
like what's what are the differences in what a CTO takes under their responsibility now versus what they would have looked like maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago? Well, I, I definitely think 10, 15 years ago, we were a lot more in a Wild West era of data. And, you know, that was kind of like, you know, I announced like the end of privacy in the early like Facebook days and things like that. <laughs> so I think, you know, we didn't we didn't have as many regulations in place. You know, GDPR came in in 2018. And since then now, like over 100 countries have some sort of like privacy regulation of some sort with sort of different nuances, different level of restrictions or how, you, you know, rules around how you touch the data, depending on the kind of data that you're, you're working with. And that's a lot to try to navigate. Um, but I think now there's a lot more industry knowledge that this is a potential problem. But I think the other change that's happened is there's also a lot more consumer awareness about personal privacy and questioning like what are companies doing with my data. And then on top of that, there's basically a massive data breach of a major corporation on like a weekly basis. Like just yeah. search Google News on any Monday and you'll you'll be shot. Or like, you know, I, I occasionally get a you know three dollar check in the mail for some sort of class action suit where <laughs> some my, suit my data is now on the dark web. And I'm like, oh thank you for the three dollars. But what happened to my daughter's social security number and everything else about her? You know, like and there's no way for businesses to take that back and it. I think now you're seeing like real negative consequences to companies that are suffering from some of these things, like where they're losing trust with their customers. It's hurting their bottom line. And I think privacy is a fundamental human right that companies should all be like trying to build the most secure private systems that they can. But sometimes that's not enough to bubble it up to being a P0 for a quarter or a sprint for your for your, your engineering team because you're battling other you know, things that you need to do that you feel like moves revenue. But now I think that's changing because the sort of value that some of these regulations and fines and distrust bring is that it becomes a forcing function for companies to do the right thing and make it a P0 uh, from day one. You, especially when we think of, like you said, you, you get these, you know, so I, I, then I had the, the wildest irony. I had a problem that had occurred with a bank that bank uh, had a class action lawsuit. I, you know, I clicked okay in the email and, and, and dropped my name in the hat. And yeah, I got a, an $8.61 check from <laughs> said bank. Then the hilarity was me putting that very check in that very bank and then getting a letter in the mail that it was being put on an extended hold uh, for whatever reason. And I was like, Hilarious. This is you mismanaging your own money. <laughs> but because of all the things that are involved there, though, is like there's a technical problem that leads to a business problem. Then there's the pre-handling and active handling in legal governance and compliance. But then there's post hoc handling, which I think is where we're in a really tough spot now that data may future... Ha, may have a future value that's greater than its current value when it's disaggregated. So this idea of like metadata, like that was what we learned about was people like, oh yeah, don't worry about the CIA. They're only collecting metadata. Like if you got enough metadata, you can build a really strong picture. Mm -hmm. And so as an organization, as I'm looking at what I'm building, I need to make sure that what I'm building has the ability for me to get in, lock, evaluate, retrain, like, I think people are future aware now that even whatever they're putting in there may seem okay today, but how do I in two years, like, 
start again, if I mm-hmm. had to start again fresh, like, so I imagine with sort of the Skyflow story, how many people are you seeing that are like seeing that there's a future value in really tight control so that I know I can back out of any mistakes that I know I'm going to make? I think that's, that's pretty common. Like the, and maybe it helps to give um, a little bit more context on sort of how Skyflow works. So Skyflow is a data privacy vault and available as a service. And essentially that concept is it's, it's a way of essentially isolating, protecting, governing, and using sensitive customer data. So the same way that you might, you know, offload identity to an identity provider, like an Okta or something like that, and not manage directly people's emails and passwords or however they're like logging into your system or creating accounts, you're offloading it to that service, but it still allows you to essentially do everything with that person's identity. In the same way, essentially, you're offloading a lot of the challenges around privacy, security, compliance of PII while giving you all the tools that you need to actually use that information. So that could be like running analytics, training LLMs, um, just essentially governing access, making sure that only the right people have the access to the information when they need access to it, sharing it securely with third parties and so forth. So all those things are really, really important. And you can essentially design your vault to represent anything, including you know unstructured data as well as structured data. And a lot of times when I talk to people at like events and stuff like that, they'll ask like, you know, what kind of data should I put in there? Like, is this just regulated data? And I was like, well, that's a good starting point. But regulated data is really like the baseline. The It's kind of like SOC 2 compliance is a baseline for security. Yeah. You should stop there. There's plenty of companies <laughs> that are SOC 2 compliant that end up in the news for, you know, other issues. But the, the way I always describe it is like, Everything that you would be maybe nervous about showing up on the front page of the New York Times after a data breach, you probably want to store in your Skyflow vault because you want to actually have the most like secure system around that and make sure that you're not leaking it. So I think that is like a, definitely a trend and a concern that I see uh, people, um, you know, wanting to take take the right precautions from from the beginning. And when we look at like data transmission. Uh, so how does that come into play with regards to the vault and say you've got uh, like a distributed data set, you've got some sitting in Snowflake, you've got some sitting in proprietary Postgres databases, you've got, you know, some, some developer went out and bought a vector database and is hanging mm-hmm. it off of a Linux box in his bedroom. Wherever yeah. this stuff is, how do you manage safety not only in, in, inside the vault, but in, you know, not at rest, but also in transit? Yeah, so this is the 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 key to essentially this architectural pattern is essentially you can think of the vault as a way to translate sensitive data into a non-sensitive form. So essentially you're de-identifying that data as early in the life cycle, ideally as possible. And then that means all your downstream services are not storing the raw original data. They're storing a representation that's been de-identified. And there's no mathematical connection between that de-identified form of the data and the original data. So that way, if you're, you know, MongoDB transactional database or your a log file or whatever it is gets compromised, there's nothing sensitive in that information. And actually, there was a data breach that happened with Capital One, I think last year, where um, they had like I don't know, it was like 10 million records or something like that that got leaked, and the ones that had been de-identified, they were not. There was no problem. But there was a, a million records for whatever reason, maybe it's like a legacy system or something like that, that were actually encrypted 
And then they were liable for the encrypted data because technically you can essentially, you know, there are ways of reverse engineering the, the encryption. Um, and uh, uh, so there's a risk of compromise that you need to essentially uh, uh, deal with. So what we're doing is being able to de-scope all these systems. And the way that we're able to generate de-identified data, we can do it in a number of different ways where it's format preserving. So like a phone number or email can still look like those things. Uh, so you could preserve the structure of the downstream systems. And we can also create versions of it that are like consistently generated because for analytics to run like a group or join or count or something like that across different tables, like it doesn't, the Snowflake doesn't care that Sean Faulkner is in there as a representation of a name. It could be ABC123. It just needs to be consistently ABC123 every time Sean Faulkner is there. So yeah. there's ways of essentially descoping all these systems. And then that also makes the challenges around like data locality much simpler because you can basically deploy these vaults to any, you know, basically any, any region of the world. We support over 100 countries, including China now. And I could keep the regulated there, data there. I can also keep compute on any of that data there because I can run essentially functions within the vault. And then I can run global analytics. I can run global LLM in whatever region I want because it's not actually touching or having data transferred out of those systems. And if I need to uh, you know, share that data with third parties, there's ways of essentially doing that through um, using Skyflow like a proxy to the third party. So you're never ever touching any of this data, but essentially giving you all the tooling so that you can do all the things you need to do with it. Well, and it's interesting, especially as you mentioned, you know, China is has an interesting set of of you know regulations that are very different. Open source has is become is very popular because of the requirements of the the government to have a, a level of access to code and there's a lot of things that, that are an interesting business challenge that leads to very interesting technical challenges. So, if I'm a new company coming into a Chinese market, boy oh boy, do I want help, right? Like this is not a thing that I want to architect from from ground up and think that I got it right because you're managing a government, you know, entity, and you're measuring, you're, you're managing customer data entities. So it's a, I, I'm glad there's a helpful hand in the middle because yeah. uh, it's a responsibility I would not want to carry. Yeah. And there's multiple regulations that you have to, to navigate. Like there's the, the personal information protection law or PIPL. So that has to do with like how basically the privacy regulations around uh, personal information. And then there's also the cybersecurity law, CSL, which is a different regulation that talks about like the security. There's a uh, multi-level protection scheme or MLPS. There's uh, regulations that dictate how you actually implement encryption. So you have to figure out all these different things and navigate it and also work with the Chinese government to get all the like signed off on and be able to, to um, deploy there. And it has to be, you know, running within China. And there's certain data locality uh, laws where transfer of some data for some period of time is allowed or, but in China, no transfer of data, even if it's encrypted is allowed outside of the country. So there's a right. lot, it's very, very um, strict regulations in comparison to a lot of regions. And it's very challenging to, to navigate. And that prevents a lot of, companies like big, big companies from going to market in, in, in China. Well, and you talked about the idea of bringing compute close to the data. So let's talk about that pattern because mm -hmm. I'm definitely, we used to call it edge and, and no one knew what edge really was. And, and now I think, I think Cisco even called it fog at one point because it was between the cloud and the, and the, and the data center. So it was, I was, it was a cute marketing term, but it, it didn't last. Yeah. <laughs> 
So getting compute near to the data in a way that allows it to act encrypted and safe, especially in this Chinese situation or anywhere, it's like, look, I just want the data to stay there and I need the compute closer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways that we support that workflow. So one, like one of our secrets, basically our secret sauce is something that we call polymorphic data encryption, which solves one of the fundamental problems that we've had historically with the handling of sensitive data, which is essentially this trade-off between security and usability. Like generally it's like, we can make it really secure, we can keep it encrypted, but in order to use it, now we need to decrypt it. Like encryption is great, but it breaks certain workflows like search, for example. And then as soon right. as you're decrypting it, you know, it ends up in a log file and encrypted by accident, or it's going to be exposed somewhere. Um, even if you're performing dynamic masking on it, you still need to decrypt it to perform that operation. But with polymorphic data encryption, it actually allows you to run like queries and operations against fully encrypted data, as well as not depend on things like dynamic masking, where you need to essentially decrypt the data and apply a masking rule. We can actually do a query and pull back only the last four digits of a social security number so that you're never ever taking risk of exposing you know, the first part of that number. Same with a credit card or anything like that. So we thought through all those different workflows. Additionally, you can run essentially like um, uh, functions within the vault. So I can write my own code that's going to stay within the isolated environment of the vault. So if that's in China, then it's gonna run within China close to where the data is sitting. And that allows me to do some really cool things like take, uh, let's say like a picture, this is a, actually a real use case with a the customer. They, they take pictures of people's driver's licenses so that someone uploads it, that data, that blob data sits within their vault. And then they have essentially a function that does OCR on the image and checks to see the, pull out the date of birth and check to see if the person's over 21. Because most of the time when it comes to the handling of sensitive data, unless you're revealing it to a user, most of the types of things that we wanna do with it is actually assertions. I want to know, right. is this person over 21 or not? So the only thing I need for my application to work and as an application developer is like a true fault on that. I don't care about what actually happens beside, behind the scenes, but we've sort of convinced ourselves that we actually need that data to perform these type of operations. I always say it's a little bit like back in the day when engineers on the team would have full like root access to SSH into a server. And then yeah. you ask them like, why do you need this? And they're like, well, that's how I get access to the log files. It's like, well... We can solve that problem without giving you root access to the yeah. servers. Um, or even back 20 years ago, when we used to store passwords in plain text in a database, eventually we realized we don't need to do that because we can. the only thing you need to do with a password is check to see, does that exist for this particular user? And you can solve right. that problem by salting and hashing. And that is a very sort of simplistic way of thinking about what we've done with polymorphic data encryption is we can essentially support that sort of password lookup, but for all types of PII that you might be storing and all the types of use cases you might be actually dealing with it. Well, and especially if you think of the the types of data sources that you need to be able to do that for, as you said, like we've got all these multimodal you know, models that are coming up and it will be stuff where people will render a PDF from data. So that PDF is now effectively a binary but then how do you take it and make sure that as it's going out, that it doesn't, number one, have any embedded information. Number two, it doesn't just overtly contain, you know, information in there. And I've, like, as we build our own internal systems too, it's it's surprising how much data just sneaks through, especially in a photo, because, yeah. you know, you may have 
more data than you even want as a business. Like if I only want this person's date of birth, but for proof, I need to have their license. The responsibility for me to carry a picture of their license is way bigger than just me asking them their date of birth to confirm. Yeah. It's just like, look at um, something like TurboTax in the United States. They have to store and own your social security number for 365 days a year so that in the like 100 millisecond transaction when they pass your tax taxes to the IRS, it's there to pass along. That's yeah. a huge amount of responsibility and liability for something that they only need for a very, very short period of time. And it's like, that is really like the problem that we're trying to solve is that you don't need to take on all this responsibility and liability because in reality, most of the time, you don't really actually need this data on a day-to-day -day basis. Your internal systems don't need to pass all this information around. They just need kind of like a representation of that information. So I said at the very start, we're not going to talk about big, bold, you know, isms of the industry. Very prescriptive thing here. Okay, so we something went wrong. We've just trained our model on a disturbing amount of proprietary data. We accidentally uploaded a, a customer financial form and that's it. So now there's a bunch in there. We don't know how many made it. We stopped the process mid ingestion. Mm -hmm. Now what? So what's the looking at that as a, a from the Skyflow use case, then what does my protection plan pre and post look like? So let's say you made a mistake like that. I guess it depends a little bit on what how you're doing your training. So if you're using a RAG model in this case, so you're, you're essentially creating embeddings and then probably storing that in like a vector database or vector index, then you would, I think the only choice you would have in order to undo that would be if you had essentially a snapshot of the prior database, then you could roll back to that. Or you need to blow it away and essentially um, fix the problem and then redo the build the rebuild the embedding model in the vector indices. If you were doing some like fine tuning where you're actually modifying the model to some degree, or you're building a foundation model from scratch, I think the only choice you have is essentially to blow away what you've done and start over again. Um, so there's like a real like you want to talk tech debt. Like this is a expensive mistake to make. Um, in terms of Skyflow, where we can fit in is essentially we can act like a privacy gateway or privacy firewall to that entire training training pipeline. So if it doesn't matter whether you're using private LLM, public or open source model, um, or you're doing a rag model or fine tuning or whatever it is that you're doing, you can essentially put Skyflow at the head of that pipeline and pass your unstructured or structured data through your, your Skyflow gateway. And we will detect and de-identify any PII, and we can even configure it with um, you know, custom terms and so forth so you can do it for certain core IP and then make sure that none of that is essentially leaking in the model. You can think of it as like, we're going to take sort of dirty, sensitive data and documents, give you clean data on the other side of it, and then your entire sort of training process is going to uh, happen as it normally would using all the types of tools that you're doing. And then when it comes to inference process, so like putting in a prompt, when there, we're going to essentially try to do the same kind of thing. So let's say I entered a prompt like, where was Sean Faulkner born? And then I want to basically detect the Sean Faulkner part, replace it with a de-identified form of that data, give that to the model. The model's already been trained on that representation of Sean Faulkner. So the inference process is going to um, happen as normal. And then in the response, and it might also have these de-identified forms of the data, 
So then we're just going to re-identify that on the way out on the egress back to the user. And then we can do something even further where we can tie the identity of that user to that information and make sure that does this person actually have access to this information? Can they see where Sean Falconer was born? Or depending on the role, maybe they see a different version of that. Maybe they see a mass version of it or something like that. And that's really where privacy gets really, really difficult with some of the stuff around LLMs. Like private LLM solves some issues, but it doesn't really solve fine-grained access control. Like making sure that Susie right. in accounting sees one version of this data and Bob and customer support sees something else and Joe, the CEO, sees uh, you know some other version of it. Like that is really the level of control that you need. Well, and when you get fine-grained policies, this is the the interesting challenge we have in general, anything around like open policy agent and stuff that we've done in the, like the open source industry, it's always been sort of very generic, the widest possible framework adoption. But then when you get into this stuff, this is very unique, very specific. I would imagine that your policy engine had to be a challenge to create. And uh, <laughs> uh, so what does policy management look like and how fine grains does it get? Yeah, so we built it from the ground up because it, you know, I think there was different things that we explored in the early days. Like you can, if you look at some of the things like how, you know, policies work within some of the like public cloud where you have a IAM interface or something like that, like those work when the policies that you're setting are rel relatively simple, but they have limitations in the GUI because it just gets complicated if you're trying to do something like a little deeper. On the flip side, you could give someone like, raw JavaScript as a way to generate, to set policies, but that's a little bit like taking a sledgehammer to like attack <laughs> in the wall. So we had to build essentially a policy language from scratch. And it's quite simple. It's kind of SQL-esque, but I can just say, you know, allow, you know, read on this type of th the data. And it allows me to control, you know, which columns a role has access to and which rows that role has access to and essentially how they can see that information. And then that, can be uh, executed either programmatically or it could be, you know, done by, uh, you know, attributed to a user. But that essentially makes sure that the customer support person has a different level of access than maybe like an administrator or CEO. And you can tie it to the identity of that person and your identity provider as well. And that way, like even a user or a customer of your system, maybe the only row that they need access to in your entire, you know, um, vault system is the data that they actually own. So there's no way for them to have access to anything else. And then right. the big one of the big advantages are you know you get this natural data minimization, but also in the worst case scenario where some sort of compromise happens, you're restricting the scope of damage. You know, a lot of times you see these data breaches that happen. You know, the famous one was with Robinhood a few years ago, where a customer support agent got socially engineered to giving up their credentials. And then that attacker was able to get access to 6 million records as a consequence of that. And it's like, why does the customer support agent need access to 6 million customer records at any given time? Yeah, like, yeah. At most, they need access to the queue or maybe even just the, like, the active conversation that they're having and probably really restricted access. Like they need to know maybe the person's name, maybe some you know uh, identifier, last for a social or a policy number or something like that. But they don't need all, they don't need the gates to this admin rights to the, to the database root level access. Like that is a huge mistake, but that's easy to really avoidable if you take, uh, if you essentially build around zero trust in this concept of fine grain access control. I think this is where like the idea of observability becoming like 
observability is about the idea that you can ask a question of a system that will be based on a set of inputs mm. and that is a generic thing and that's why observability became this sort of four pillared approach of you know network you know logs traces you know application data there was all these different things that you could layer in there but they fall under the pillars and it was the combination of them which is very complex because it's unstructured data that gets mapped with structured data that's time series that sometimes is just blob data mm -hmm. So observability solved an interesting challenge. And I think this is the next layer where it's like, I don't know what the word is. It's like, it's policy driven, obviously in, in what it does, but policy in clear language is really what we're after of like, what are you trying to achieve as an objective? I, as a customer service rep, need to confirm that this person has a current plan and that they are of the age of majority. But like you said, the way we do it today, you know, read star dot star on database, <laughs> on customer database. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Select star dot star. Uh, delete, delete from, you know, drop table. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, when you really start to like, you know, ask these questions at a fundamental level. And that's really where we started. You know, if you look at the, you know, both the, the co-founders of Skyflow and also a lot of the original um, people on the early days of the team, like, our backgrounds are not cybersecurity, privacy people. We're all data people. You know, we came from Salesforce, Google, Microsoft, these types of backgrounds. And I think that allowed us to kind of take a very first principles approach to this problem of like, what is the fundamental data problem that you're trying to solve here? And that really comes down to like, when you're talking about policies uh, and access control, it's like, I want to be able to map my business requirements for what a particular user needs to do to essentially the policies with which they have access to that information. And they don't need access to all those other things. There's very few reasons why, you know, someone needs access to a lot of these things. And then also that kind of thinking led us to also the innovation around polymorphic data encryption, where we could support all these types of workflows, because the types of workflows that you do with PII are fairly specific. You know, if you think about a social security number, we call it a number. It's not really a number. It's more like a data structure. Like I would never take a social security number and multiply it by my credit card number and divide it by my passport number, for example. Right. But I know the use cases of, of a social security number ahead of time. I need to probably do some sort of fast lookup to make sure that, you know, does it exist or not? Um, but I can do that essentially in a way that I, I don't need the plain text value. I also need to be able to securely share it with a third party, like maybe a KYC vendor to do, uh, you know, know your customer type of lookup. Um, and then I also need to be able to reveal the last four digits. This very, very restrictive number of things that I need to do with it. And that also allows you to essentially force or enforce certain um, controls around the policies because you would never want a policy where a user can essentially read a full credit card number of any customer in, in the vault. Like that's a right. ridiculous thing to have. There's no real business use case for why that would ever happen. So you can essentially make it not possible for that to happen. Yeah, it's like the, I mean, it's funny, like we've had to make up for stuff that we've accepted, unfortunately, blindly in physical interactions. Like we would go, you hand your credit card to someone, they look at it, they take a picture of your driver's license. They like, I'm I'm old. So we said like the Kerchunker machine that you would like yeah. literally on oh, the yeah, paper, yeah. you know, like make the imprint. And like the full credit card number, everything, there was no three digit code on the back. And then they would take a photocopy of someone's license. And you're like, 
<laughs> it's horrifying to imagine that we used to have this and I'm a 15 year old cashier and thinking yeah. like, I just took this person's whole identity and like, I'm a good kid, so I'm not going to do anything with it. But yeah, what if I wasn't a good kid? <laughs> well, we took like basically this 1980s type of thinking and now we applied it to the scale of the, the web and the cloud. Yeah. So, you know, in that circumstance, at least, you know, that is not a very secure system, like especially with the the conchunker, you get end up with like the ink note being thrown in the garbage where you can just pick it up and read the credit <laughs> card right. number off of it. And um, but that uh uh at least it's restricted in terms of it's very, very limited the scale of a problem. You know, someone needs to get into that business and dig through the garbage to get that. And then they're compromising, you know, even if they got everybody, maybe they get like a hundred people. But now we're we've done essentially that apply that same type of thinking to the way that we, you know, store and access data at scale. And I can be in another country and get potentially hack into that system through some sort of known vulnerability and get access to millions of those. So the scale of these problems is much, much bigger today. It's just like when I go to like a bar or something like that, and they want to know how old I am and I put up my driver's license, you know, technically that person could, you know, get, some information about myself, like my home address and so forth. Um, and we're comfortable at least with that level of risk, but you probably wouldn't post a picture of your driver's license number on Twitter. And right. because the scale of that is much more severe. He yeah, has the old uh, meme used to go like, we get it. You just got your first credit card. D -d -d don't, don't tweet it out. Like, please don't do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think the other thing is we have some of these like legacy things that we've been holding on to. Like if you were to redesign, redesign something like social security number or social insurance number in Canada from scratch, I don't think it would look the way that it does today. Like it wouldn't be something that you're giving the raw material to. It'd be probably work a lot more like how Apple Card works, where essentially your yeah. credit card stored in a vault on your phone. They're also one of the pioneers of this concept of a data privacy vault. It's stored in a vault on a phone. And the only thing that gets transmitted is essentially a token representation of it. And I think if you were designing, you know, these things, these like government type of identifiers, like a social insurance number, social security number from scratch today, we'd probably have a similar system to that where, you know, the these you know the the i or sorry the irs doesn't need my social security number they already know my social security number yeah all that needs to happen with TurboTax is they need to prove that i authorize them to do this on my behalf and they don't need the raw data to prove that they're authorized to do it yeah the apple card concept was so interesting and when i got mine it was like okay this is pretty neat but then I like you think hard about it, and actually I saw it in action the other day where I just used it, and you see there was like something I saw for a moment the credit card number, and it's like a it's a random number. It's not the number that I have. If I yeah. click on my app and say what's my number that I type into a form, and then the moment that that gets compromised, you shut that number down, you turn on the next number, you don't lose the credit card, which used to be always the biggest hook of, you know, I get a call from whatever credit card company, and they're like, hey. Somebody just used your card in, in a place that you are not like, okay, good. All you need to do is just, you know, wait three days for us to ship you a new one. And I'm like, I'm in Las Vegas for a business conference. I have no bank. I have nothing. Like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And the fact that with an Apple card technology now, okay, no problem. That number's dead. Here's your new number. And it's, it, you do not lose. That's like, if we can do that at the data layer, which is like, this is why I'm excited about Skyflow's like 
approach. Mm-hmm. It's the technology itself is fantastic, but the approach is more important to me because you've chosen that sort of ground up type of thing. Even folks that look, if they layer on top of Okta, I call them out as a, you know, perfect, right? Uh, so I, do I worry about the company because they're, what data are they passing to Okta? Little did I know that Okta would get breached mm-hmm. through one of those partners that then results in now Okta having a lot of high profile breach egg on their face. And now every other partner that uses Okta as a backend provider, I now have to think, good golly, how are they securing my data as it goes to Okta? It's a lot to think about, right, as a business owner. And so when I choose a technology, I I spend a lot more time looking at like, how did they come up with the concept as much as like, what's it built on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we get, a, you know, common question that we get uh, is often like, how do I know that my information is secure with you versus, you know, whatever I'm going to do myself. And, and, you know, I always say that it's, it's basically your vault. It's not our vault. We don't have access to the data. So there's like yeah. essentially that, but the other thing is this is the only problem we care about. <laughs> you know, we have <laughs> more engineers on this problem than probably any other company in the world, maybe outside of Apple. So this is, do you want to grab that? Sorry, apologize. That's right. I've got a pizza delivery that apparently just arrived. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. We'll power through. But the, so th- that, and like, if you look at sort of the people within the company that work on this stuff, like our CISO has over 50, 50 patents and database encryption. Like he invented most of the things that we use in modern databases for encrypting data. Um, you know, one of the things we always talk about is like, if you go to any company and you ask them, while you're doing encryption, like who's in charge of your encryption key rotations? Most people do not have an answer for that, but we definitely have an answer for that. And that's where a lot of, that's like a encryption key rotation is one of those things that people underestimate the complexity of. But if you screw it up, you basically lost all your data. It's it's a little bit like being locked out of your house, but there's no you know person that locksmith that you can call to fix that problem. And that actually almost happened to PayPal, uh, you know, a number of years ago, where they messed up key rotation, right, and uh, almost lost like tens of millions of records. And they would have probably had to email those people and tell them, hey, can you log back in and enter your bank information? Like they would have lost a lot of money. And the re- I think the way that they were actually able to recover from that was they realized that there was a bug in their code that did the ret- rotation that they were actually able to exploit and and get the data back. So if they can screw those things up, like it's, it's something that is, uh, you really want to leave it to experts. Yeah, and I think that this is why uh, I love this idea there's actually so much more. I just realized I'm like, boy, oh boy, we 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 got into it great here. Uh, and thank you so much, Sean. This is really fantastic. There's a lot I'd love to talk about. Like, it's funny that human computer interaction, and I think this is why you've been such a fantastic fit in the role that you do and the content that you create and the way you you bring, you know, the importance of things to to the customer view is this idea that we used to call it HCI and now it's called UX, but it mm-hmm. really is much more than just the, the physical UI that we're interacting with, but the entirety of like, how do I access support? How do I trust the engineers? How do I trust a company to be around, especially in the early days of a startup? Like I love the way you solve this problem of very keenly you know, bringing together what matters to the question 
and being able to explore deeper. You're a model for a developer relations and marketing leader that many people should uh, look to. <laughs> so, you know, you you do so much more than even the the nerd bits, as I like to call. Uh, you know, that's I got my nerd bits that I do, and then I got my my people bits, and they merge most of the time. But you have to have skills in both, and very few people actually have the level of skill that you've got on both sides. So it's it's been fantastic to kind of see how you pull it together both as a career and, and it's executing well with what you're doing with, with Skyflow. Well, thank you very much. And I, I really enjoyed uh, this as well. Yeah, so uh, for folks that do want to get connected, I'll have links obviously to Skyflow and, and to, to you. Uh, what's the best way if folks want to reach out and ask any questions about you on, on just about anything? Uh, so you can find me, uh, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. You can find me at, at just look up my name, Sean Falconer on LinkedIn. Uh, or if you Google search me, I'm sure you'll find me. Uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Nice. This is you at least have a good name that people could chase down. I unfortunately have so many people that have my name. This is how I end up with Disco Posse because uh, so Eric Wright is a Canadian mystery author. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, Easy E, uh, the most famous of the Eric Wrights. I didn't stand a chance when it came to SEO and discoverability. So, but you Google Disco Posse, uh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you there got is. Me. I only know of one other Canadian, Sean Falconer, spelled exactly the same way as mine, who also studied computer science um, and now works for <laughs> AWS, who I met about a year ago. And he was like, I walked in the room, I introduced myself, and he's like, I know you. And I was like, occasionally, you know, I get that or something like that. And I'm like, oh, how do you know me? He's like, we have the same name. We, we, <laughs> we're from Canada. And we're also <laughs> studying computer science. And you sent me an email like 15 years ago to introduce yourself. I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> but, so. Yeah, it is. But it's a very human world. Uh, as nerdy as we get, it's a very human world. And uh, it's been a pleasure to share the time with you today, Sean. Uh, looking forward to future opportunities together. Have a great uh, day. And for folks that are listening, of course, check out this and other fantastic conversations. We've got the video and the audio. So we get the best of both worlds. And I look forward to a chance to chat again. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Sean.